What mis and disinformation does is it plants seeds of doubt. We have come across climate disinformation stories that are including biased and discriminatory content. There is no doubt policy plays a role in tackling misinformation. Climate change and disinformation on social media. Perhaps at first sight, these topics may appear unrelated. However, fostering the ecological transition in Europe requires substantial effort in terms of shaping public discourse. Notably, debates occurring on social media are part of the public arena, where citizens can be convinced about the need for an ecological transition. And therefore, disinformation can have a huge impact on climate change-related attitudes. What is online climate change mis- and disinformation? Where does it take place and why? And how does EU policymaking play into all of this? Hi, my name is Gail Rago, and I'm your host for this episode of the Bold Europe podcast. In this episode, our guests explore the concerning rise of climate change disinformation on prominent social networks. It highlights how social media has exacerbated the weaponization of climate change within the context of culture wars and revealing the pivotal players who amplify climate misinformation and disinformation within online communities. Our guests also shed light on the climate disinformation policies implemented by very large platforms and describe the objective of the Digital Services Act in this regard. To uncover this complex and fascinating topic, our guests today are Jenny King and Ana Romero Vincente. Jenny King is Head of Climate Research and Policy at the ISD. She has spearheaded investigations on climate denialism and discourses of delay and is a co-author of ISD's flagship reports such as Deny, Deceive, Delay. She currently manages the COP Intelligence Unit on behalf of Climate Action Against Disinformation. Ana Romero Vincente analyzes and counteracts disinformation at EU Disinfo Lab. She is well informed on the Spanish disinformation landscape and has published several international investigations on the monetization of disinformation. She currently addresses climate misinformation and monitors audiovisual social media such as YouTube and TikTok. Jenny, Anna, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Let's start by understanding the essentials. Jenny, could you briefly explain how climate misinformation affects us all? And what are the key ways in which such misinformation spreads on social media platforms? Absolutely. Like a number of other key public policy issues, achieving progress on climate action is absolutely dependent on a public mandate. And by that, what I mean is strong consensus among citizens, among voters, among the general public that both recognizes the urgency of the problem and that also agrees on what the viable pathways going forward are. And really what mis- and disinformation does is it plants seeds of doubt that delay that process from taking place at both the pace and the scale that needs to happen. And I think what's really important for listeners of this podcast to understand is that there is now a broad-based recognition that climate change is a real threat at the existential level, and also that governments need to lead the charge in delivering ambitious plans for net zero. 
What there is not consensus on is how we go about achieving that. So how do you implement these principles of achieving net zero in practice through changes to infrastructure, through changes to energy, through subsidies, etc.? And exploiting that gap between recognition and action is really where you see the majority of information operations and information warfare taking place now. And on your second question, which is how this content spreads on social media, I think climate mis- and disinformation is quite unique from other areas because you have two different ecosystems existing in tandem and interacting with each other. On the one side, you have a very professionalized set of industry-funded or industry-affiliated actors who really have been developing their tactical playbook since the 1970s and continue to invest on an annual basis billions of dollars, both in traditional forms of of advertising and working with legacy media, but also increasingly using the capabilities of social media to spread their message and to influence public opinion. So, for example, subtle forms of sponsored content or of working with influencers to spread their message. And at the same time, you have this highly decentralized and organic universe of what I would call the outrage economy online. So people who are not necessarily receiving a paycheck from big oil and gas, but who have clearly seen a financial incentive for spreading mis- and disinformation around climate in order to increase their brand, to get engagement, and ultimately to monetize their content and to make a profit, to make a sort of revenue out of being part of this problem. So those two universes sit alongside each other, and they have now what I would consider a kind of marriage of convenience that has ramped this up to new extremes. Thank you, Jenny, for that. Anna, as a researcher at EU DisinfoLab, could you give us an overview of how very large online platforms or VLOPS, V-L-O-P-S, handle climate misinformation? Yes, thank you. So I'd say that in recent years, these very large online platforms, and I'm going to focus on the ones that have been studied lately, which are uh, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter slash X, YouTube and TikTok. So as I was saying, some of these big platforms have taken different approaches to climate emergency. They try to incorporate or to strengthen actions regarding the dissemination of climate disinformation on their own social networks. Whereas we could say that most platforms are flagging certain misleading and false content about climate change, we have identified that there's still significant gaps in their climate misinformation policies. For example, currently only TikTok has included, well, also Pinterest, but as I was saying, I will focus on my study. So only TikTok has included climate change in its specific misinformation policies, whereas Meta is framing climate disinformation within their sustainability policies, which is not necessarily bad, but we think that it's a big approach to content moderation. On X slash Twitter, the situation is very worrying because climate change is not referred in any of its policies, so we know nothing about how they handle climate disinformation. It's true that Twitter was about to launch certain measures to tackle uh, uh, climate disinfo from a pre-bank climate disinformation hub and other actions addressed to ban misleading ads. But none of these initiatives appear to have been implemented. And it's not a surprise since uh, Twitter X reversed previous policies after Musk came into post. 
And what happens with other texts as, such as YouTube? Climate disinformation measures only apply to paid content. That is to say, YouTube doesn't ban climate denial videos. They prevent ads from running on these climate denial videos. So at least they cannot get any profit. But still, disinfo researchers, we find too often that YouTube keeps running ads on content that rejects climate science. In this line, something similar with TikTok, they have adopted a very mild approach regarding their ads policy. So at UDC InfoLab, we basically consider that platforms today should be challenged not only with determining and enforcing their approach when it comes to misleading or harmful organic content, but also with demonetizing and reducing the financial incentive for climate denialism. Unfortunately, climate misinformation is just one aspect of online content challenges. When we're talking about social media, we can also refer to hate speech and extremism. And I'm curious to know how these existing issues intersect with the spread of climate misinformation on social media platforms. So I'll give a very simple and direct answer. I would say that misinformation, in this case, climate misinformation, and particularly disinformation, is fueling hate speech and they even provoke sectarianist sentiments, while also favoring extreme and polarizing positions. Actually, I think it's a phenomenon that fits itself. To be more specific, first, I think we need to understand what hate speech is. I'll very briefly describe it. It's uh, all forms of expressions which spread, inside, promote or justify any type of hate based on intolerance and hostility. And in that sense, we have come across climate disinformation stories that includes in, that are including biased and discriminatory content towards, for example, the scientists who support the climate consensus. Just to give uh, one of the examples of how hate speech intersects with uh, climate disinfo. Jenny, would you like to add something? Yeah, I think it's worth highlighting that climate has increasingly become weaponized with what's often referred to as the culture wars, by which I mean it's seen as a point of entry to prey upon these existing fractures and fault lines in society and to try and drive a wedge between different communities. And what that means is that many of the accounts that are spreading the highest traction forms of mis- and disinformation about climate are also engaged on other policy issues and often are touching upon forms of hate speech or conspiracist and extremist thought. So what we would consider to be some of the repeat offender accounts, the accounts that are most prolific, most active and most successful, many of them have also spread Holocaust denial or touched upon neo-Nazi sentiment, or very dangerous anti-Semitic conspiracy theories such as the New World Order and the Elders of Zion. So it's not necessarily that the climate content in and of itself is always hateful, but more it is increasingly coming alongside these other types of conversations that are othering specific communities or trying to point a finger of blame at a perceived us versus them. Thanks, Jenny. That brings us very cleanly to the next question, which is that climate change has become enmeshed in these so-called culture wars. Acceptance of scientific consensus is now seen as an alignment with liberal views, consistent with other cultural issues that divide the country. So it seems that it is no longer about facts, but about values. Would you agree with me? Let's start with you, Anna. 
So, Gail, I cannot be certain about it. I sincerely hope that it won't be the case. From what I've seen in the past with other topics such as feminism, which was also part of the cultural war, at least here in Spain, where I'm from, well, that was terrible. I myself remain positive that as a society, the climate change issue can still stay out of that cultural war. And look, I'm coming from a tremendously polarized country, but I believe that in the end, human beings have good judgment. And although it is fine that we continue to defend opposing positions among ourselves, I hope that public space does not become a battlefield. What I think would be good is for all of us to understand that behind this cultural war against climate change lies a very dishonest propaganda to achieve political ends. An optimist. What about you, Jenny? I would say that we have seen an evolution in the type of denialism that is really gaining traction in the public sphere. And I always think about it as the difference between don't trust the science versus don't trust the scientists. Now, that first column of content has been circulating really since we started to know about climate change at all, going back 50 years. And it's the kind of phrases like, Climate data modeling isn't conclusive enough for us to plan net zero transitions, or the data isn't reliable enough for us to take these punitive actions. And that kind of content, I think, has slightly less cultural currency than it might have done even in the early 2000s, because actually there is such an enormous body of evidence now. And, you know, 99% of the scientific community are in agreement about the reality of the problem that it's much harder to make those kind of arguments. What is rising to the fore a lot more are phrases like climate change doesn't exist and anyone who tells you that it does is a shill for the globalist cabal or is acting on behalf of Bill Gates and George Soros or is secretly in the pocket of the World Economic Forum and trying to strip you of your civil liberties. And that shift is incredibly concerning because it's much harder to rebut. With that first type of content, in theory... It hasn't necessarily been done very well in the past, but in theory, you can flood the zone with good information and you really improve and become more creative with public education, with outreach, with community engagement until people understand the evidence that is available and how conclusive it is. But with that latter line of attack, once you've undermined trust in institutions, whether those institutions are academic or the media or policymakers or any experts, who then are meant to be your credible intermediaries? It makes it a lot more difficult to have a good faith public discussion about this issue and ultimately to try and implement ambitious solutions going forward. Before we move on with the interview, a brief recap on the DSA or Digital Services Act, which we mentioned a couple of times. The Digital Services Act forms a single set of rules that applies across the whole EU, defining the obligations of digital services like social networks, online marketplaces or travel and accommodation platforms that act as intermediaries in their role of connecting consumers with goods, services and content. The DSA aims at creating a safer digital space in which the fundamental rights of all users of digital services are protected. 
One of the explicit expected outcomes of the DSA in the words of the European Commission is to limit the circulation of disinformation. Hopes are high that the law will initiate a significant transformation in big tech. It aims to reduce surveillance advertising and manipulative practices on online platforms, combat online hate and disinformation, bolster user rights and impose unprecedented accountability on online platforms. The DSA came into force as of late 2022. Given its relatively recent adoption, the effects of the DSA will need to be evaluated over the next few years to come. However, the adoption of the DSA represents another milestone in the context of EU-wide policymaking in the digital sector, just as the adoption of the EU General Data Protection Regulation did. So let's look at the future and talk about solutions. There is no doubt policy plays a role in tackling misinformation. What are some simple yet effective policy measures that the EU has or is considering to combat climate misinformation on social media? Anna, let's start with you. So, well, of course, the Digital Service Act that hold big online platforms accountable for spreading disinformation on many topics, climate change included, we hope. In fact, platforms' obligations to list a few, and depending on their size, are content moderation, transparency of algorithms. They may receive sanctions if they don't comply with what this law establishes. But I would like to highlight something. I'd say that I don't know what, Jenny, you think about this, but I think that we should be patient. Although DSA came into force already some time ago, have become mandatory for many companies since last August 25, still think that social networks are not going to change so easily because it's not just them at corporate level. It also requires a profound cultural change, I'd say. At the end of the day, social platforms are driver of communication and to a certain extent, it might be understandable that technology platforms find it difficult to stop the catalyzation and spread of this information. What about you, Jenny? Ultimately, Anna is a lot more sort of in the weeds on things like the Digital Services Act, but I think the shift that the EU is really trying to mobilise through policy mechanisms like the Digital Services Act is moving away from social media platforms that are purely optimized for engagement and ultimately for profit and that are driven by a business proposition and thinking a lot more about safety by design, by which we mean the way that digital architecture can impact democratic processes and our ability to engage with with key issues. So some of the provisions that are written in to the DSA, but are also being considered in things like AI regulation, advertising standards, etc., are all really trying to think about how do we make sure that evidence-based information has more of a fighting chance in the public commons, that we can try and design and curate these shared platforms and these shared spaces to optimize for that as the best possible outcome, rather than just optimizing for people spending 12 hours a day doom scrolling through feeds that are not in fact informing them or telling them anything useful around the world, but in fact are increasing division and making it a lot harder for us to achieve progress on some of these critical areas. How would you like a response on climate issues to feature in the next phase of the DSA or the Digital Services Act implementation? Anna, go ahead. Yeah, I'm going to be very short because I think that we should focus on the present. Now it is about 
ensuring that platforms are complying with the policy and that it is ensured a safe and an accountable online environment. So make sure that digital platforms are not anymore misused to subvert science or undermining climate action. Jenny. What's important as we go into this first phase of implementation for the Digital Services Act is how climate should be considered as a distinct vector of harm alongside all of these other key issues. We are not saying that climate mis- and disinformation requires the same type of response as terrorist recruitment, for example, or mobilization to violence. But each of those requires its own nuanced response. And the fundamental principle underneath all of them is transparency and accountability. And one thing that we'd really like to see is far greater provision of data to vetted third-party researchers, academic institutions, policymakers, regulators, so they can actually understand the nature of some of these harms across social media. At the moment, the reality is these platforms are completely opaque. We are completely reliant on voluntary disclosures um, in ways that make it very difficult to understand the dynamics of public discourse and why certain harms seem to be getting worse and why they are producing such dangerous outcomes. And, you know, there is, a, I think, a misperception that whether it's TikTok or Facebook or Twitter or YouTube, that these are so-called free speech environments. But they are not free speech environments. They're curated speech environments. And they always have been. The architecture behind these social platforms dictate to the nth degree exactly what each user is seeing and what they are likely to engage with. And understanding the decision-making processes and, as I said earlier, how they can be optimized for safety rather than division is going to be an essential step in making sure that the DSA delivers on its ultimate values and ambition. Where are platforms, terms and services currently falling short? And isn't there a freedom of speech issue at play? You touched upon this, Jenny. Anything you'd like to add? The problem to date has been that platforms want to implement policies that they can announce and that make them seem proactive without really tackling or having a sober conversation about the root causes of the problem. So to take one example, Meta made a, a big splash about its Climate Science Center, which is meant to be a verified hub for information that users can turn to to understand fact-based information coming from sources like the UN. Now, in and of itself, we have no issue with that as a program of work. It's obviously great for them to provide additional resources. But what it's not confronting is the fact that missing disinformation still massively outperforms that verified content on a daily basis. And it therefore makes those efforts a little bit moot and more of paying lip service to the idea of action rather than really dealing with some of these architectural problems. Another major issue to take TikTok for an example is that they went for a very punitive and very harsh content moderation approach, whereby they said, if you are spreading climate denial, in theory, we are going to remove that content entirely. Now, not only is that practically unenforceable, they are never going to be able to achieve it unless they suddenly hire a million content moderators covering every language globally and operating on a 24-hour cycle. But it also does pose major issues around freedom of speech, because in liberal democracies, in theory, people can hold opinions, even if they are factually incorrect or if they are unpalatable. 
What they shouldn't be able to do is to monopolize the public commons, to take up all of the oxygen with that content, and definitely to be able to generate profit and revenue, both for themselves and for the platform, by spreading lies or by spreading hate. So we are very nervous about approaches that go all in on content moderation, both because they are impractical, but also because they miss the bigger picture, which is about who is making money off this kind of content. What are the incentives for spreading it? And how can we confront that problem and make sure that that proposition is mitigated in the years ahead? It seems obvious that online platforms need to work together with experts and policymakers to tackle this issue. Jenny, how has the collaboration been until now? Could it make a difference in the near future? In terms of collaboration between tech companies themselves and the climate sector or expert researchers, of course, that is absolutely essential. There is no desire for the sector for this to be an antagonistic relationship. We're not there to just point the finger of blame because it is satisfying for us. We want the platforms to improve and we want to provide them with an evidence base and also with policy advice and with sort of strategies that they could implement both short and long term to try and mitigate these harms. So we, I think organizations like ISD would always welcome an open dialogue and we would consider ourselves to be critical friends of big tech. We've worked with all of them in dispatches on climate and many other issue sets. What you are seeing increasingly is companies reach out to particularly climate science experts to do forms of inoculation or pre-bunking. So essentially pushing verified information out to users before missing disinformation reaches a critical mass to try and pre-warn people of what they might see and hopefully embed a kind of awareness of the facts so that missing disinformation doesn't take hold. So that's a promising sign. I still think that there is a huge way to go on the transparency front and on actually dealing with some of those bigger architectural issues. And when it comes to working with regulators, I think that that connective tissue between the policymaking realm and then those who are on the front lines kind of steeped in these issues is absolutely integral. Because ultimately, the people who are writing and trying to implement the DSA, the Digital Services Act, they cannot be experts on every aspect of mis- and disinformation whether it relates to climate or to public health or to electoral integrity. And equally, they are not necessarily well-versed in the tactical playbook that is being used, both for hostile state interference, for propaganda, for coordinated information operations. So they are really reliant on organizations like EU Disinfo Lab, like ISD, like a whole host of others to provide them with the evidence that then informs their decision-making. So not only on the scale and the extent of problems, but also on what the potential solutions and responses might be go- going forward. How can social media platforms increase transparency now that we're talking about it, about their efforts also to counter climate misinformation? And why is this transparency important? You've talked about it already, but if there's anything to add, we'll start with you again, Jenny. One example of, of transparency efforts recently are that Twitter published its source code for its For You page, which is essentially the news feed that users encounter when they log into the platform. But that disclosure, it lacked any contextual information, which would enable us to have a true understanding of why users are viewing certain tweets. 
Also, at the same time, the platform is undergoing such rapid change that that snapshot may well be out of date in a matter of days. And until the Digital Services Act came along, there was nothing except these voluntary kind of contributions or disclosures of data. What we're hoping going forward is that that will become a lot more regularized, a lot more formalized, and also that there will be consistency across the platforms. So it's a lot easier for us to compare and contrast both the trends and the harms between both the major platforms and some of the more fringe sites um, that are playing such an important role in public life. Thanks for that, Jenny. We obviously can't forget the role of users or us. So I believe digital literacy can be vital. Anna and Jenny, what strategies can be employed to enhance our ability or the user's ability to discern reliable climate information from misinformation? And what about content creators and influencers and how much they are used these days also to spread misinformation? Let's start with you, Anna. I think that, of course, fostering media literacy seems like necessary action commitment, but Allow me to stress what I think is not working well from the kind of educating point of view. We see daily that climate change is defined by bad actors as ecofascism, ecological spam, to mention some terms. And we I observe how these terms become popular not only in social networks, but also in mainstream media because at the end of the day, it provides them with content. So the media, it's favoring these controversies and even multiplies them. My point is that the climate emergency is often discussed in formats that are not designed for education, such as the mainstream media, that uh, overall is not making good scientific dissemination. I'll leave it there. Then let's end with you, Jenny. As with everything, communication is fundamental. And for whatever reason, I think the climate sector has really struggled to get its message through to those on the ground. One of the biggest problems is that climate as an issue set is so complicated and so nuanced and that it feels like this all-encompassing, quite abstract problem. And one of the key challenges going forward is how you can contextualize that issue in a way that has direct relevance for people in a specific community. So not trying to educate them about every single aspect of environmental change and the net zero transition, but really thinking about what might their fears and grievances be, and also how can you help them, to how can you center them within conversations around climate justice, around the pathway forward, around how environmental action might actually improve the lives of their families, their communities, etc. And so balancing the big picture with a hyper-localized picture is going to be really important. The other area where I think we do need to bring citizens in is actually on the tech regulation front. You were asking me earlier about what tech companies should be doing, what their policy response should be. And I think to an extent, we have to ask whether companies themselves can or should decide the right approach here. You know, of course, we want private companies to be good corporate citizens and to make decisions on that basis. And things like the Digital Services Act, the Code of Practice on Disinformation, they're all trying to push companies in that direction. 
But when it comes to these really vital areas like public discourse or scientific literacy, it is also very dangerous to centralize control within big tech, where the incentives are always going to differ from society at large. They are companies, they have shareholders, they have profit margins. And so those decisions about what the policy response, what digital regulation should look like, they should be grounded in data. That data should be made available to the public through transparent audits. And then that data should be debated by liberal democratic systems. And I think without that, we can't really know what safety by design means or how it can be achieved in practice. Thank you, Anna and Jenny, so much for this very interesting conversation, something that affects all of us. It's been a pleasure. Just a few last words that I hope that... uh... All these actions, uh, podcast, DSA, the research, everything will contribute to pacifying human relationships in the virtual world. Thank you so much for having me. If any of your listeners want to follow ongoing analysis around misinformation, climate conspiracies and the policy response, they can always look at ISD's website, isdglobal.org. And they can also check out our wider coalition, which is called Climate Action Against Disinformation at caad.org. And that brings us to the end of the 10th episode of the Bull Europe podcast the podcast of the European Union office of the Heinrich Bull Stiftung in Brussels. For more information, check out the recording of the webinar Polluting the Truth About Climate Change, an event jointly hosted by Heinrich Bull Foundation and EU Disinfo Lab. You can find it online on the EU Disinfo Lab's YouTube channel. And that's it for today. Until the next episode, goodbye. Goodbye.